Welcome back to Power Surge from the Center for Industrial Progress. We've been gone for at least a week, maybe two weeks. Lots has been going on, but I'm back. I'm Alex Epstein coming to you from Orange County, California. Stefan Hen is joining us from Germany. Stefan, welcome back. Hello, thank you. Now, at any moment, Stefan might be disappearing because they are having a thunderstorm there, which could knock out power on an already unstable grid. So let's get to it because you never know when you might lose him and we don't want to miss his insight. So first story, energy commentator legend, Amory Lovins. What's going on with him? <laughs> yeah, Amory Lovins has a uh, uh quite large house in Colorado and um, there has been a featured article over at Grist uh, which shows how renewable and green his uh, rather large house is and uh, what small footprint it has in during operations. Um, so he uses a lot of solar panels of course, um, batteries and uh, he even grows bananas and coffee in 8,000 feet of elevation uh, because his house is so energy efficient. He has very thick walls for insulation purposes and so on. And he apparently uses um, very little energy every day. Um, one more interesting part of uh, this story is um, that the fact that this house needs to be connected to the grid and uh, sell solar power during day and uh, you know, get power from the grid is promoted as a feature where solar power is so abundant for the solar panels that they can actually export energy. And uh, that is something, a nar narrative we have seen in Germany where there have been exports going up in electricity uh, because there has been this random production from solar and wind. Yeah, okay, so to just elaborate on that, um, yeah, they, they talk about, I mean, this this comes up all the time, and, and I was, um, uh, my sister and brother-in-law just got a new house, and I think they had, it had solar panels on it, um, and, you know, there's just this idea of let's look at our power bill, and it's going down, and we're, quote, selling it to the grid, but it, it has this idea that, like, you're, you know, selling bananas at a at a farmer's market. It's just this discrete thing and you're just adding pure value. Uh, but it's more like you're you're selling bananas to somebody who you're trying to sell bananas to some person who might want bananas sometimes but often has way too many bananas uh, already and you're forcing him to eat the bananas at very specific times when he might not want uh, bananas. So the the, the fact that solar is off for let's say eight hours a day and then it is it is on irregularly during the day and has a you know very much a peaking pattern with you know peaking near midday that is that means that you're just you're getting um you're not getting a reliable flow of electricity whatsoever so if you have the rest of the grid running on a more or less reliable source like natural gas it can cycle up and down with the patterns of solar and Lovins can get away with it. But he, he's 
he's not giving reliable, he's not dispatching. If he, if he were running a gas plant and they said, hey, Emery, we need X amount of energy now. And he said, great, I'll deliver it to you. That would be a real value. But to deliver it in this you know, unpredictable way or this way dictated by the sun is not nearly as valuable. Now, you could argue that in some contexts it might be a little bit valuable for air conditioning during the middle of the day, which he doesn't use. Um, but it, it is... Um, it's certainly not not self-sufficient, and so that's that's one thing. Um, and then, of course, you know the windmills are the same thing. The windmills, and and you'll see this in the moral case for fossil fuels. We've got some good diagrams just of how irregular these are, and how essentially all of the energy always needs to be, um, all of your energy use needs to be supportable by the reliable uh, sources of energy. One more thing, I'm curious, Stefan, what you think about this is. There's this interesting focus on household energy use as if that's the only kind of energy use. If you think about what you do in a household, if I, th I think about what I do today. Now, granted, you know, I, I like having these big high-resolution computer monitors and whatnot. Um, but even with those, if I think about most of the energy that, that is used in my life, or at least a lot of it, a lot of it goes into the, the manufacture of things that I use and, and to things that are not happening here, such as all the energy that goes into farming my food. So you could say, oh, well, I'm completely self-sufficient in terms of eating my food. Yeah, but what produced uh, the food? So this, they often use these statistics of enough X to support X hundred thousand, you know, enough solar to support X hundred thousand households, which ignores the fact that it's not, de not delivering the reliable energy, but also it's not delivering the quantity of energy. So I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, it's, um, in these um, news stories by uh, Greens where they promote all these technologies, it's always a matter of how to spin things. It's like, you know, there have been so many studies on life cycle footprints and energy use of uh, various technologies. And um, it's always the main question to me is always what is left out of the picture? Um, because if you see... If you see the House of Lovins, um, who could afford this kind of technology where it is right now? I mean, that's even if you could uh, deliver that many solar panels to everyone, um, the costs are just not scalable. So nobody can afford to live like Lovins. It's a luxury thing. And um, well, that, yeah, that's, that, that, just interrupt for a second. That that one thing that we we're talking about in advance is. At no point in this article does it represent the price. Does it mention the price of the house, which is yeah. insane? I mean, this is this is. There are lots of things that you can do. I mean, you can. I mean, if you think about efficiency and how how things work, you you can always say I'm going to invest more resources in one thing to make less of it necessary. So I'm going to invest more on walls so that I need less electricity. Or you know less gas to heat the house, but the and maybe it's more efficient. Great, then do that. But maybe it's not. And in the house overall, they don't you don't even get a good number because if you look at Lovins' site, it says originally they use original numbers, and I think it's four or five hundred thousand, which I think is about a million in today's numbers. But they say to build the house, that's how much it is. And then they said this is typical for Aspen, Colorado. Now. I'm not sure about this, but that sounds very misleading because I think what they're talking about is the 
I don't know why it's it, how is it that much more expensive to build things in Aspen, Colorado, or is it um, is it is it that um, is it the are they is that number factoring in the land value of things in Aspen? I don't know exactly where it is. Is it right next to the ski slopes? That would make it a lot more um, expensive. But this is you know an incredibly expensive house, and just the the idea that the whole, they're saying. Look, this this hero is using it this way. Why don't you? Well, this person is is rich, um, so it doesn't do what it says it will. But it's it's it just shows what a a lack of interest there is in whether people can actually improve and enjoy their lives, and what it would mean to be living a lifestyle where you scrimp together all your savings to use this quote unquote efficient house. And then you spend all your time doing things they talk about, like using some pulley system to dry your laundry. I mean, hopefully we have better things to do. Yeah, and there's uh, also always this uh, spinning of the narrative where they, uh, you know, makes this look like Amor Lovins is actually saving energy. Oh, really? If he can afford that, why doesn't he live in a smaller one-room apartment and has all this insulation and all these little LED gimmicks and so on? Uh, that would save a lot of CO2 and energy and so on. So, I mean, in the end, this is always boiling down to if you want to ultimately re reduce your footprint, you have to stop existing. Well, That's the best saving. And that brings us to the next story. Which is lifestyle babies, a new culprit of climate change. What's going on there? Yeah, some uh, quote unquote scientists, according to the news story, uh, prominently Christina Ritchie of Boston Co College, uh, Massachusetts, um, have identified uh, reproductive health care as one of the major CO2 drivers, especially in America. And um, well, they are stating that this is a luxury and um, we should apply certain rules like a, a carbon taxing scheme um, and uh, denial of certain treatments uh, for reproductive health care and so on. And uh, yeah, so now it's about, you know, having babies. And uh, as we know, many Greens actually have discussed that getting children in the first place is one of the biggest carbon emission sources. Well, I think it's undoubtedly true that it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and the term carbon legacy seems to be promoted here. They have the statistic where it's multi your carbon legacy is multiplied by a factor of five if you have a child. I don't know what calculation that is or how far they're quote-unquote thinking into the future. Um, you know, we had one I think earlier, saw earlier this year, I posted on Twitter, Sierra Club, six times so let's let's just talk about this as if there was some issue, you know, some sort of threat or negative byproduct. Or there, there's this premise that you do not have a right to create waste or any byproduct, or, and this is a completely indefensible principle. Waste is inherent in life. All organisms, you know, we consume something, and then we excrete waste, or we have a productive process where we take in certain outputs, and then we, we, we put in certain inputs, rather, and we put them through a process, often a manufacturing process, and then that process involves certain risks, and then it produces a product, and it produces byproduct. And sometimes the byproduct is something 
that is negative and that we don't entirely know how to dispose of properly. And certainly the process, there are many processes that we don't know how to deal with properly. And let's take the, I think the number one underrated form of, you know, byproduct is human illness. So I think human beings are, you talk about, people are talking, oh, the health hazards of coal plants. What about the health hazards of living around other human beings? I mean, in many ways, we are walking biohazards. I had norovirus a couple weeks ago. That was very unpleasant. And I was a hazard and I had to stay away from people. And, but I didn't know I had it at the beginning. It's possible I got communicated. Certainly somebody communicated it to me. And that took, that made two days of my life overall quite unpleasant. And, you know, to somebody who was not in as good health or not as young, it could have been, you know, very destructive or certain, or to someone, you know, to a baby, it could, it could have been fatal. Um, and this this is the kind of thing that happens. I mean, we just can, there are contagious diseases. We get there, and you know infections. There are STDs. Um, you know, sometimes contracted innocently, and you know, human beings. It's just inherent in life that we ourselves are this are this hazard. So the idea that well, there's quote unquote climate change, which is a very vaguely thing. But let's say there was some negative to it that doesn't prove at all that you can't have a kid or that you can't enjoy yourself or you can't have a fun house or that you gotta be spend all your time pulling laundry or um, all this other suffering. This is just a total assault on the nature of life and happiness where waste is a part of it and, and it's something that we are much better at minimizing or much better at, at coping with and that's evidenced by higher life expectancy, uh, higher income, even, you know, lower pollution by us, much higher environmental quality, better sanitation, better water, uh, much greater safety from climate that, you know, whatever, if we did any negative, we offset it by, you know, literally dozens of times through things like by controlling our own climate and protecting ourselves from the inherently dangerous and volatile climate. So by building sturdy homes and by being able to move away from storms and by able to heat our homes and cool our homes. So we should feel great about what we're doing with waste and you should enjoy having a child. And if, if you want to have a child, I mean, the main thing in responsibility for a child is just make sure that you you can take care of it and that you think about things like education. You don't let it get too indoctrinated by these Kind of anti-human organizations like Sierra Club and and Greenpeace and um, people who don't think your child should exist um, in in the first place. So it, it's just very important not to have guilt about being a human and about human nature. And they'll try to take the things that we want to minimize and use those as as guillotines to you know to chop off parts of our life, to often the parts of our life that are most important, like you know, for many people having children. And you cannot accept that guilt. You have a right uh, to exist and you need energy to exist and you have a right to do um, you know, what, what makes you happy. Now, you're, if you violate others' rights, if you, if you interfere with their actions in life in the way that, that the Greens want to interfere with ours, that's, that's one thing. But, but there's no such thing as a zero-risk zero byproduct world and that's not an ideal that should be used to destroy actual ideals yeah so i think that's very important i think it's one of the most important points um i've made on this this uh mini podcast so far so um hopefully that's valuable stefan any final thoughts i think this is a prime example of uh, how this uh, co2 emission 
thing can be abused by everyone who just hates humanity and industrial civilization itself. So, you know, this researcher in this article argues uh, that the ecosystem, quote unquote, is already overtaxed by the resource and environment consumption of medicine. So, I mean, what are we going to do? Are we going to curb back uh, medicine? Are we letting more people die? Will this save us, give us salvation? It's really, really cr a creepy thought. Yeah, and that, that's there, there's the question there of what is the standard of value by which you are saying you know, the ecosystem is in bad shape? If, if we're much better in life, and you're saying the, the solution to this, quote, problem means let's have a bunch of people die, then you're not thinking of it from a human perspective. You're thinking of ecosystem as, probably as this collect you know, eco-collectivist fantasy where nature is this delicate, harmonious state. Instead a of, what? A shared planet. A shared, yeah, okay, well, I mean, I don't know what that means, but yeah, it's, it's um, even the planet as a singular thing from the perspective of, of human life that we either benefit uh, or destroy, you know, versus this, this, this giant ball of potential, you know, which is incredibly diverse. And the main thing is, can we, can we uh, make the world around us better? And then other people are, can they make the world around them uh, better? But the, you know, there's a whole show to be done and really a whole book to be done on the notion of the, the proper and improper use of the idea of ecosystem and ecology. And, and I'm pretty sure it was come up, the term ecology was, a philosophical term, uh, not it, it was not this, and, and it's very you know very collectivist. Just as just as the uh, you know, just as the the garden variety collectivist, you know, with socialist, communist, national socialist, views the individual as unreal and the collective as this as an entity, you know, as a being that's superior to the individual. So there's this view that there's something called the ecosystem that is superior to individual living things. Now, it, the, the accurate part is there is a system, but the question is what kind of system? Because it's like the economy. Well, the economy is a system, but it's not superior to the individual. It, it comprises uh, individuals, and individuals are what matter within the economy. So if you're describing it, it, it can be a summary of what happens and you know, from the perspective with economy, from this perspective of individuals, it's good for if economy is going well, that generally means individuals are going well, but there's no such thing as economy that's superior to individuals or that justifies violating certain individuals' rights. And the same is true with ecosystem. It's, it's, it's yeah, we exist in a certain kind of systematic way, but A, the part of the system that matters fundamentally is the human beings. Um, and then also you have to understand the system like an economy is a, is a competitive, ever-evolving system. So the fact that there's actually, I think, a direct analogy. You know, people think, oh, well, my corner restaurant changed and I want to grow up in the neighborhood that I, I want to live in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And people think, well, I want to live in the climate I grew up in. I want to live in, in the ecosystem I grew up in. Well, too bad nobody does because it's ever, it's ever-changing. And, and that's an irrational desire. It's an anti-progress uh, 
desire and it's, it's a complete failure of imagination because if you think about it, what would, I mean, it would be, you know, somebody who lived 50 years before you could say the exact same thing uh, about, about our uh, lifestyle. So it's really important, this idea of nature as a competitive system versus this, um, you know, superior, superior godlike uh, collective being and even ecosystem. It's not really, I mean, in a sense, it's a system, but it's, it's, it's viewed as a static system or a system that should be static and just all of us are getting along great and everything is nice and stable. And that's what we depend on. And that, that's the kind of person who does not understand how nature works and particularly how human life works and how that's a dynamic, ever evolving process. And, and if you read Atlas Shrugged, there's a lot of good stuff in there just about how the, you know, the collectivists in that book um, are, are ultimately, you know, they're anti-change, anti-mind. They just want everything to stay the same and they, they fear, you know, a society of individuals who are, who are ever evolving because they themselves just uh, do not want to take the responsibility to think and to change, which is the responsibility that life gives us. So they want everything to stay the same. And then they also want to be in charge and take everything away from people. All right. Well, that was, uh, yeah, I think, I think we covered some good stuff there. I wish now, I wish I could have added some of that, that to the book. I just finished the book. Let's see. Oh, it's, it's Thursday before last. So it's a week and a half ago. Um, there are just some final little changes looking at the galley copies, but all the text is in place. Uh, some lucky people have advanced manuscripts. If you're, you know, if you're from an organization that might buy large quantities, you can contact me at alex at industrialprogress.net. We might be able to uh, hook you up. But in any case, I, I, I'm really happy with how it turned out. I think it's going to be a great resource uh, for you to just just that compiles, that puts a lot of things together, including a lot of data, including data you've never seen, graphs you've never seen, graphs I had never seen, um, and then just putting together the arguments as well as I can. But I'm sure I've learned so much from it, and I think it's improved my thinking, so I'm sure in these episodes I'll think of a lot of things that retroactively I'll want to put in the book. But uh, that's good. They can all go in the next book. So Steph, oh, well, let's just see. Just just to make sure if anyone wants to contact us, uh, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, you can get me at alex at industrialprogress.net. You can get Stefan at stf, stf, s-t-e-f-f-e-n at industrialprogress.net. And make sure to get your copy of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels on Amazon. I'm checking those. We get those pre-order statistics every week from Amazon. They've been going up. I hope they keep going up. So buy one for you uh, and buy a couple for your friends and family. All right. Good show today. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you. Have a guilt-free day. <laughs> uh, I will. And, and to the audience, do the same.